0: Turning your Bibles this morning to the book of 2 Corinthians, chapter 2. 2 Corinthians, chapter 2, we find Paul in the middle of this apologetic or defense of his travel plans and really the false accusations they are making about him concerning those. Uh, ultimately, accusing him of being wishy-washy and a liar, um, untrustworthy. Which then extends to an, a sense of untrustworthiness over the gospel message itself. And so I see my Prezi isn't up there, but let's try a few things. Any luck back there, Tyler? Mm-hmm. Let's try one more time here. It's eating into my preaching time. It says it's recognizing it up here, so I don't know what's going on. Oh, ah, that was God's kindness. Okay, so Paul's in the middle of defending his travel plans, the accusations they're making about them. You remember, in the first Corinthians, he says, I'm not going to come to you right now. I'll come to you longer. Then he switches that up and then goes ahead and has a pre- brief visit with them. Uh, that goes really, really, really badly Um, which we're going to get into a little bit of the meat of that here in just a few moments. Uh, And so then he writes them a letter, a letter he calls the severe letter after that painful visit. Uh, And they're still pretty wound up about things. Titus is the one who carries that letter to the church in Corinth. And then Titus brings the response from the Corinthians back to Paul, and that's what precipitates 2 Corinthians. And so now Paul is kind of getting in the mix of this conflict And what's going on there. And so in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, uh, and really that answer for him runs from about halfway through chapter 1 all the way through the end of chapter 2, but we're taking it bit by bit. And so in the verses we're going to look at this morning, verses 5 through 11, he's specifically addressing his relational forgiveness, a seeking of reconciliation and restoration of the ringleader of this group uh, who has been opposed to him. He's going to deal with the false teachers that have infiltrated the church, and they're also riling people up. He calls them super apostles. Apparently, it's a title they gave themselves. He, he'll deal with those folks later in 2 Corinthians. But for now, he's talking about this ringleader. And apparently, this man, through Titus, has sent back a message of repentance, confession, and asking forgiveness of Paul. And so what we find in verses 5 through 11 is Paul's response to that idea and that concept. And so if you have your Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 2 verses 5 through 11. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, if I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his designs. Now, There's a lot packed in there, and it's fascinating, but I I think for us this morning, what's going to be most helpful is for you to begin considering the conflicts in your own life, the way that you handle conflict relationally, the way you deal with other people when there's a problem. And ultimately, our takeaway this morning can be this, shining the light of the gospel on the barriers and how we handle conflict will cut a path toward reconciliation. Now let me start here. Moving to the South, there's, there's been lots that, that has been new for me culturally. And one of the things that was new for me culturally was the love and fascination with college football. Now, first of all, I didn't grow up in a sports-loving family, per se. Uh, but up North, the, everybody loves professional sports far more. But college reigns supreme. As you guys know, reigns supreme down here. And, and it wasn't long after I arrived in Columbia, South Carolina, that people were already asking me, which team was I going to root for? and and they really only meant one of two teams, right? They they didn't care that I was a Yankees fan. They just think that's gross and reveals that I have a lack of discernment. Um, they didn't care that I love the Baltimore Ravens, because that's where I grew up at. They wanted to know, was I going to root for Clemson, or was I going to root for the University of South Carolina, the Gamecocks? And now, and, and can I just be honest with you, I really didn't care, but like they cared a lot, and that was kind of shocking to me. That's a cultural shift. Now, if all you've done is lived in the South, that that may be news to you. But like lots of areas of the country, it's not as big of a deal. I'm not knocking it. It's just a cultural difference. And so as the fall would roll around, I became aware of something known as rivalry weekend, right? So that's the weekend that uh, all the big rivalries happen. So Clemson, yeah, in our state, Clemson plays South Carolina. And you got Georgia versus Georgia Tech, Florida versus Florida State, Auburn versus Alabama, just to name a few of them. And it's a big, big deal. Most football programs, as you know, they can have a great season. They lose rivalry weekend, and everybody's mad. Or you can have a terrible season, but you beat your rival, Rivalry Weekend, and the coach keeps his job. So it's like a huge, huge deal to them. Well, as you know, here in South Carolina, Clemson just dominates this, this rivalry. I think the latest stat was in their series. They've won 71 times against the Gamecocks, 42. And so it's, it's just it's hard to call it a rivalry, honestly, some years. Uh, I, you know, some years, unfortunately, it, it looks like a professional team playing a high school team. It's it, it's been rough, but there was a stretch shortly after I got here, for about five years in a row. I think 2009 to 2013, the Gamecocks won every year, and it was kind of funny. Like like it was fun around town. People are excited. You know, it's it's like David beats Goliath, kind of thinking, and we finally have it together. And and it was a big deal. I had to get used to the fact that coming to church on Sunday, after Saturday, if people's teams lost, like like it was actually like you had to deal with people's depression over this. Like they just so identified with whatever their team was. I'm not knocking it. Root for your team. Have fun. I don't. I don't really care. I think it can be a gift from God to enjoy sporting competition. I don't. I don't think you're more righteous or evil who, who you root for. Some might, but but I certainly don't think that way. But you know, sometimes we can take those kind of rivalries and identification too far. We we can make it individualized to our heart. It can it can it can become idolatrous even. Nothing stood out to me more than that than four years ago with my son in DC. And I took Ian on his 10th birthday trip. We're walking around D.C. and enjoying our time, and we're hitting Smithsonian's, and we visited the Naval Academy and Fort McHenry up outside of Baltimore, and, uh, and, and we were just having a blast. We, we hit all the major monuments and memorials, and I, I think my favorite are now the new Korean War Memorial, and it's just a beautiful structure, and President Roosevelt's memorial, But we were walking down the Lincoln Memorial steps. I I just had been standing with my son uh, on the top of the Lincoln Memorial, and I was just talking about the impact of that place and that moment in the nation's history. And my son was wearing a USC shirt. Um, Why? Because it was on sale at Goodwill. Okay, so like, just, you know, like if you're struggling, get over it, it's okay. And I kid you not, I hear some guy start screaming Go Clemson! And I'm like, surely not. And I look, and I mean, this guy's got to be like 50 yards away, wearing blaze orange, right, like in purple. He's screaming at my 10-year-old son, 450 miles away from South Carolina. And I look at him, and I'm like, I'm processing, right? So first of all, I'm like laughing, because I'm like, this dude he doesn't have issues he's got full subscriptions going on because you got a problem if you got to scream at a little kid about your team right like be excited i don't care have fun but do you think we ever take conflicts and make them our identity we make it who we are maybe even in a relational context in your family There becomes a fight, and it becomes, whose side are you on? You have church conflict. Whose team do you support? And it very quickly and easily can become us versus them. And when our conflicts, and I say our because this is so easy for my own heart. When our conflicts become our identity, I just want you to know, it is profoundly difficult to ever have restoration and reconciliation. It becomes who you are. Suddenly, to lay down the conflict, the arms that you're using to fight one another, the weapons of your warfare, and confess or repent or not think evil of others becomes like climbing Mount Everest. It becomes like not just running a marathon, but running it through molasses. It's a moment that the Bible would advocate for peacemakers to come in, objective outsiders to speak truth to both parties. But let's be honest, most of us are too proud to admit when our marriage or our parenting or our neighboring or our churching needs somebody else to help us. Because in our pride, we think we can resolve it. And ultimately, typically in our pride, we think the problem is them. And if they would stop, then everything would be okay. And so what we need are vital truths. What we need are truths that will reorient us back toward our relationships with one another in a gospel-centered way. Now, the context of this very clearly, very clearly is local church. This is Paul trying to reconcile a church to himself, him toward an individual, But there's a kind of a hidden message in here. This is a crafty way for Paul to do this because the whole church in some measure is opposed to him. And so by walking them through how he is relating to someone who has sinned, and is confessional and repentant, he is teaching them and he's calling them to begin asking questions of their own heart. How do I deal with conflict? How do I approach someone that I've begun to view as my enemy? How do I deal with conflict that I've made so personal that to lay down the weapons seems unconscionable to me? And so by doing this, he so kindly and gently gives them an insight into their own heart and thereby also gives us an insight into our own hearts. And so to understand it, let let me just remind you of the buildup to this conflict uh, before we completely try to unpack all these verses. Um, Paul, as I said, made the trip that in 1 Corinthians he said he wasn't going to make. But he changed his mind. He sent that letter to 1 Corinthians, and he said, you know what, I think I probably should go. He goes, and when he arrives, he has to deal with lots that's going on there. But one of the things he's had to deal with is in 1 Corinthians 5, he had to write to them about a very specific person. This man was having an illicit affair with his stepmother. Now, that's not an art, that doesn't happen in our day. It didn't happen in their day. They thought it was gross, weird, wicked. Even the pagans didn't do this. Um, some commentators even believe it was actually codified, so it was against the law what this man was doing. So this man is a member of the Corinthian church, and he's involved in this just really debauched relationship. Everybody knows about it, the whole church knows about it, and the church isn't doing anything about it. And so Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, and he said, you need to discipline this man out of the church right now that's first corinthians 5 get him out of your church now there's every indication both from the clues of first corinthians and clues in second corinthians that this guy was also a part of a smaller group in the church in corinth who were very wealthy and in paul's day not very different from our day the ones with the money are the ones who have the power so this man held power, he had influence, he has wealth. Um, there may even be some of his own servants and slaves that are also members of the church. How are they going to stand up to their master and vote him out of the church? How how we even do this? So this man has influence, he has power, he's part of this, this, this rich guy's club, I don't know what else to call it. Um, and then he's also doing this wicked thing. So Paul writes 1 Corinthians and says, discipline this guy of your church. And this is the first time he's told them, deal with immorality in your church. There was more of Corinth in the church than the church was in Corinth at this point. Writes 1 Corinthians, when he gets there on this visit that becomes a painful visit, they haven't dealt with this guy yet. And not only have they not dealt with this guy, at some point in this visit, this man begins to vocally... And publicly oppose Paul and his authority. Apparently, whether it was in a service or whether this guy starts having people to his home or whether he's going to visiting others, he is now undermining and undercutting Paul's authority. He is appealing to his friends and others in the church that to support him, and that Paul is overreaching. And Paul, remember, Paul lied. Uh, hello. The letter shows up, says, I'm not coming. Next week, here's Paul. You can't trust him. How do you trust him when he says to discipline me out of the church? You can't depend on him. He's not trustworthy. And this guy begins to rile up the church against Paul, the apostle, and his authority. All kinds of accusations begin to be leveled at Paul. It's just, uh, how do you even handle this? I, I've, I've had lots of experiences traveling around. I've, I've got some in-laws that they're always asking me, what's the latest fun story for you, Steve? Because weird things happen to Steve Johns. One time I was traveling, I was preaching at a church in Wisconsin on a Sunday night. Uh, and I got about three minutes into the sermon. And this lady stands up in the church service and starts screaming at me. Get to the text, and I'm like, uh, okay, like, and I didn't, like, it's one of those moments, like, you don't even know what to do, right, I'm just looking at her, it's a huge auditorium, this church had been through multiple church splits, I mean, this church probably sat three to four hundred easily, old school, um, I think, former Lutheran church, beautiful interior, wood pews, and there's like 30 people there, and she is screaming at me. I'll never forget. She's like right over here. Uh, you can stare. It's like we're, right where Kendall's sitting. So just think of Kendall. No, just don't think of Kendall as that lady. But it was like right in that moment. And I'm just like, I don't even know what to say. And she's still screaming. Just get to the text. And then, I kid you not, the dude that led the singing, he's like up here like where Pete's at. And he's also, this guy was a deacon in the church. He starts yelling back at her, sit down and shut up. And I'm just like up here up front. Like. What do you even do with this mess? I wish I had studied through 2 Corinthians. I would have just been like, okay, folks, I'm packing up. I'm out of here. Because that's what Paul does. Paul's like, I'm, I can't. It's painful. So he leaves. And after he leaves, he's with his friends and his fellow companions in the ministry. They've witnessed this. And so he writes what he calls the severe letter. And in the severe letter, I mean, look, we've read Paul's epistles he doesn't call any of the rest of his epistles severe and he's pretty confrontational. So if Paul says it's a severe letter, he threw down on these people. He said it straight and he sends it back with Titus and that letter gets there and Titus reads this letter and God uses that moment to break this man and the church. And the church, the majority rise up and discipline him out of the church. There has to be a vote, because that's the only way you know there's a majority. The majority determines this man, Paul's right, we're going to obey the Apostle Paul, we're going to obey the word, we discipline that they kick him out of the church. God uses the church discipline to reach into this man's heart and break him over his carnality, both in his illicit relationship and in his response and rebellion towards Paul. At some point he must have come to Titus, confessionally telling Titus because Titus brings all this information back to Paul. And this is what Paul is having to deal with. And so Paul uses this response to this man to help the Corinthians understand what forgiveness and reconciliation looks like. This man has wreaked havoc in their church. This man dropped an atomic bomb in their church. Now that's in some ways hard for us to imagine, right? But someone who's done that level damage, you've disciplined out of your church, has done that level of harm, now wants back. Well, how do you respond to that? How do you respond in the conflicts of your own life when someone's hurt you very deeply? And then they're confessional and repentant? I don't know about you, but I'm a lot like the majority in Corinth at this point. Fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. Look, I'll tell you I forgive you, but there is no relationship from now on. You don't hurt me too deep. It doesn't seem fair that I'm supposed to receive you back into my life, and I'm going to live the rest of my life with the scars from you. Well, you get to go on like everything's fine again. I mean, that's not even good for my mental health, right? To be around someone who's hurt me so much? And Paul knows that that's the response of the church because Titus tells him, look, Paul, I read that letter. This dude is confessional. The church disciplined him. I stayed there long enough. This guy's confessional. He's repentant. We know it. And they don't want him back. And this guy is like crying himself to sleep at night. He is overwhelmed in his sorrow. He wants to have restoration. And they are not interested. And so before we get to the hurdles, I want to direct you to the last verse of our section. Now that we've got the layout of the fight, Paul says this. Everything he's, I'm about to teach then is for this reason. So that we would not be outwitted by Satan for we are not ignorant of his designs. Do you know what that guy in D.C. forgot? He forgot because he's so identified with his team in the conflict He forgot that a 10 year old little boy is not your enemy. He's a little boy wearing a sports shirt. That's all he is. Do you ever forget that people are not your enemy? This is cosmic warfare, folks. This is spiritual warfare. And the New Testament is full of passages that have to remind us of that reality, right? Uh, We have to be told later in 2 Corinthians, we don't wrestle against flesh and blood. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal. In other words, we as Christians do not fight, do not handle relational conflict the way lost people do, or we shouldn't. We should recognize my fight isn't my neighbor. My fight is the rulers of this world, which is Satan. We have to be reminded in Ephesians that as we do conflict, we're to put on the armor of God. Because our fight is against wicked things. We have to remind ourselves and we have to be reminded that conflict in our homes, in our marriages, conflict in our neighborhoods, and our communities, conflict in our country, conflict in our church, is just a smaller part of a greater cosmic spiritual war that's going on. So the way we handle it will put us on one side or the other. The sheer fact that you're a believer is what Paul is saying here. The sheer fact that you're a believer doesn't mean that in a conflict, you didn't put yourself on the enemy's side. Now that is hard to say. Because what that means... What that means is that when I am in a conflict with my children or with my wife, and I am not walking in the Spirit, and so I'm not loving God and loving them more than myself, and so instead, um, maybe I react in sinful anger or mopiness, right? I'm going to punish you emotionally by not talking to you. Or I'm going to be around you, but I'm going to let you know how sad I am by how you act. Or, I'm not gonna let you serve me. I mean, like, we'll cut off our noses by our own face, right? There's one time, I don't remember when, this has happened more than once, but me and my wife having a tiff, having a fight, and I always have to clarify. Like, there's never been dishes thrown at our house, like, there ain't no weapons being pulled out. It's verbal, right? And, and, and we're having some argument, and it's not resolved, it's not reconciled. And my brain is full of all her wrongness, which is probably like 10% of that mess, right? But, but in my scales, it's really more 90-10 the other way, right? And if she would just humble herself and repent, we'd be all right. But we're having this conflict we're not reconciled yet. I'm not leading well, clearly. And, it, like, it's dinner, and she would be like, oh, would you like a piece of dessert? I'm like, no. I don't want no dessert. I do want dessert. I just don't want her getting me dessert. Because that gives her one up on me because now she's serving. Because she gets to come in, like, all Jesus-like and be like, oh, here's your pie. I'm not going to give you that chance, right? We, we have actually, in a moment, like, argued about who's getting the piece of pie, right? Like, not who's eating it, but who's serving, right? Because we're going to be, go full on Pharisee at that moment. We're going to spiritually. Do you ever do that in your conflicts? I got to believe we're not the only couple. I got to believe that it's sometimes you, like me, become confused that my fight is not with that person. But there's a spiritual war going on here. And I've got to own the reality like the Corinthians need to. The way we handle conflict is what defines which side we're operating on. We don't have the luxury of saying, I know Jesus, so I know I'm on his side in this fight. Unfortunately, as you and I handle conflict, even as Christians, we can do it in such a way that makes us outwitted by Satan, that means outsmarted, and ignorant, or naive is the word there, clueless to the way he works satan wants conflict and he wants believers to not reconcile the conflict and so everything we're about to see and we're going to look at four truths for common hurdles barriers to us resolving conflict is for this reason so that god gets the glory and in this cosmic warfare moment jesus gets the victory so what are they what are these barriers to brotherhood? First of all, pain. Pain. You see it in verse 5. Paul writes them, now if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. Now this is kind of Paul. This is gracious of Paul. This is biblical of Paul. Paul understands that while he was the focal point of this man's anger, while Paul was the focal point of this man's rebellion, the sinful assault was greater towards the church than it was toward him. And Paul knows that it's easy for any of us to buy into satanic philosophy about these kinds of things. Remember, this is all in the cosmic warfare moment. And so Satan wants to outwit us, Satan wants to dupe us, Satan wants to convince us. See, The reality is our great enemies are the world, the flesh, and the devil. Now the devil cannot possess a believer, the devil cannot control a believer. What the devil does is he constructs a world system and a way of thinking and operation that aligns with his mission. And so it justifies wicked behavior. And so when we've been hurt, one of satanic philosophy is that time heals wounds. No, it doesn't. Wounds, true pain, is too deep for time to fix it alone. It needs some gospel medicine. Um, thinking time will heal wounds is a little bit like someone having a deep gash in their side from a mugger who stabbed them with a knife and thinking giving them two Tylenol is going to heal that mess. They need some reconstructive surgery. They, they need some stitches in there. They need some pain medicine and they need some time to heal and probably some rehab afterwards. It's a satanic philosophy when you and I believe in the conflicts in our lives, church, home, Community, marriage, parenting, I don't care. Thinking, I mean, just give it time. That's going to fix that. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. Thinking that speaking truth is not loving. Going to someone when they've wounded you or hurt you, or going to someone to confront them over their sin against others, somehow means you don't love them. That's satanic philosophy. We know that because in Ephesians 4, in a wonderful chapter about personal sanctification and the way the church operates, he pastors and the way the congregation helps disciple one another and the way you personally grow. Do you know how that chapter starts? Fight for unity. He knows it's cosmic warfare. And so he knows that we need to speak the truth in love. it. But Satan says, no, you've been hurt. Someone's hurting you, then don't do that. Having a heart ready to forgive makes you weak. We need to have a disposition, a bent that you're ready to forgive. But, but the world, and Satan says, no, that makes you weak, a weak person. Needing to repent means you're being judgmental. God says we're to forgive others as God, for Christ's sake, has forgiven us. Listen now, repentance is a crucial component of confession and reconciliation. And there is such a thing as fruits of repentance we'll study that when we get to 2nd Corinthians 7 because Paul tells the church I can tell you're repentant and here's how I can tell you're repentant but the world says that's just being judgmental I said I was sorry this is like, a, a picture of the extremes, right? A guy comes home every single day and he's a loser. He is wicked, he is carnal, he's a loser. He comes home every day, he yells at his wife, why isn't my food on the table? And he backhands her if he doesn't get the meal he wants. One day he sits in church and he's like, oh, I shouldn't do that. So the next day he comes home with a bouquet of flowers and he's done this for years. Comes home with a bouquet of flowers. She's got the, ta- the dinner on the table, hot and ready. He hands her the flowers, he goes, here, I'm so Sorry. She's not crazy that there's a part of her that's like, huh, I I hope so. And he does this, and she goes, and he's all crushed. Like, how would you pull away from me? I told you I was sorry. Look, look, you kick a dog every day, the dog's going to shy away. You're going to have to put some fruits of repentance on that mess. So if that's Tuesday with bouquet of flowers, what happens if he comes home Wednesday and he's all mad again and he backhands her? Guess what the Bible tells us? That apology on Tuesday wasn't worth a hill of beans. There needs to be some repentance, some change, some running, some growth. Satanic philosophy, everything I just said, says that's just being mean and judgmental. No, that's called biblical. You and I don't get to heal wounds lightly. We have to own the fact that we need to grow and change. And then also, you need to avoid hard things. Somebody's hurt you once, don't let them in to hurt you again. Stay away from this. Paul's saying, he hurt me, I'm forgiving him, you should forgive him. And their minds is going to sound crazy because you don't do hard things. So here's the question. How do we move past pain to peace? How do we do that? Because I want to be honest with you. There are deep wounds that happen. Deep wounds. Deep wounds painful wounds Man, I was talking to my wife about um, some things that happened in my life when I was 7th grade and it was like I went right back they were deep deep wounds from another kid at school and it is like I was right back in that moment how do you move past that kind of pain it's not just time it, it's not avoidance We move from pain to peace when we see it in the context of a bigger cosmic story and we trust him to write the story. Jesus says, for the joy that was set before him, he endures the cross. He understood the pain he was going to experience, rejection, despise, wounds, physical, emotional, relational, mental, spiritual. He is crushed for our iniquities. He bears the full weight of God's wrath for our sin, And yet Hebrews says for the joy that was set before him, because Jesus understood this pain is in the context of a bigger cosmic story that's going on. Joseph, Joseph goes and when his brothers come finally to him from Egypt and, and they sold him into slavery and they abused him, they wanted to murder him. When they come now needing food, and they don't even know who he is yet, and he's overcome with emotion, and he's, he's in anguish, and he goes into his private chamber, and he is ugly cry, weeping over what's happening. His brothers are terrified of him. He's able to look at them, and he says, Don't be afraid of me. You meant it for evil. God meant it for good. We are only able to move past pain to peace when we can understand and cast the depth of our sorrow in a greater story for His glory. It's the only way. I'm here to tell you there are some pains that will be with you until you die. I don't like telling you that. But it's important I tell you that So that you don't feel like you are some class B subpar Christian. That you still carry hurts. And like somehow you're going to arrive at some level where it doesn't hurt anymore. The Bible doesn't tell us that. He gives us a day when he'll wipe away every tear. That day is not today. It's an eternity. But we are able to achieve reconciliation with others. We are able to to receive confessional repentance. We are able to confessionally repent ourselves. When we understand this warfare moment is in a bigger picture, We, we know that God tracks our sorrows. He doesn't ignore them. God meets us in the deep valleys, Psalm 23 tells us, and actually walks with us in the midst of that pain. God will judge them rightly when we never could. We have warped lenses and it's hard for us to make righteous judgment. And we want to pray in precatory prayers. Sometimes we're so immature, we want to pray God's judgment on the dude that cut us off on the street or the, the guy that cuts us off in line at Walmart. Like we know we're weak people, so when somebody really hurts us, we have to trust God in the greater cosmic story of spiritual warfare to deal with that person who's doing this. God is with you right there in your painful moment, in your deep emotional hurt. And he is on mission to show that he is better than self-preservation. You see, you and I are afraid of pain. We are afraid of going back into a relational conversation where we've been deeply hurt by people. And God wants us to know that he can go with us into that valley to face what feels like a giant because it is part of the story that he's writing for our lives and for his glory. His hand holds ours. His comfort is for our confusion, his care for our hurts, his strength for our weakness. In the midst of our pain, we have to remind ourselves he is on mission with this and will reveal it fully one day. We move from pain to peace when we see it in the context of a greater story. Paul understands that and later in 2 Corinthians, he talks about our sufferings and our sorrows working for us an eternal weight of glory that doesn't even compare to the pain we're experiencing. It's not just pain that's a hurdle. Maybe pain's a hurdle in your relationship. I know it is in mine at times. But secondarily, the way they understand church discipline is a problem. They don't understand the full context of it. Uh, He says it this way, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough... So, you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him. Or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. See, there's every hint here that this matches what Jesus says in Matthew 18 if a man repents, then you receive him back. Or Second or Corinthians, Corinthians 7, they've repented, so now we can be restored. Or, or Ephesians, you forgive as God for Christ has forgiven others because they're repentant. And so, and so there's every indication here this man's sorrow matches James 4, kind of sorrow over sin. And he's telling them the discipline worked. So so stop with the discipline and receive him back. Discipline is never fun, but it's always an outworking, or should be biblically, of right discipleship. Hebrews 12, God says he disciplines us as children, every one of us. You haven't ever been disciplined by God, you don't know him. It's that cut and dry. So don't ever be ashamed of having conversations with other believers where you have to confess and admit uh, and you're just being open and transparent. Man, I need you to pray for me. God is disciplining me right now. He is bringing some things into my life to make me more like Jesus and it is all kinds of uncomfortable. It's as uncomfortable as like when I start my new exercise regimen in January, right? I got sores, muscles where I never knew I was supposed to be sore. God is working me over. He disciplines all of his children and so right church discipline is an outworking of what God wants to do in the life of the church and the lives of people. They don't understand this, though. Discipline is hard for everybody. When the majority disciplines this man, there is some kind of a vote. So the reality is, we don't know that it was anonymous, public, we don't know. But what is obvious is they knew some supported this and some didn't. And because the majority supported it, it went through. This is never easy, right? This is never easy. Because even that moment introduces the possibility of conflict, right? So now the person who disagrees with me and how they vote, this never happens in our country. The person who disagrees with how I vote is my enemy. I mean, isn't that exactly what we're all fed all the time? And that easily extends itself into the life of the church. You know, in family settings, hey, where should we go to eat today? Suddenly, there's a vote. And whoa, (laughs) you know, suddenly if you want Outback over Olive Garden, I don't even know if you know Jesus anymore, right? Like, we, we just make everything. So you can only imagine the tenseness of this moment. Nobody likes to be the bad cop. Everybody wants to be the good cop. If you're the parent who has to discipline, it's easy to resent the fun parent. At this point, it would be easy for the majority to resent the minority. We did the hard work. We had to carry the burden. We had to be the pit bulls while you got to be the golden retrievers. And it's just wrong. Why did this man make it hard on them? Why did this man make this happen? Why did this man force them to deal with them that way? Why didn't he just repent, uh, get out of this illicit affair, and ask forgiveness of the church for how he dealt with Paul? Why didn't he repent sooner? You know, it's interesting, some modern commentaries, more modern ones, and one ancient one, Tertullian, were convinced this man here couldn't be the man from 1 Corinthians 5. This is why, interestingly enough, this is why. Because his sin was so grave from 1 Corinthians 5, there's no way Paul could have been advocating for restoration. You know what that reveals? They don't understand discipline. Discipline is not about the depth or how bad the sin is. It's about being unrepentant over the sin. So when you are repentant, there is no sin that cannot experience the full grace of restoration. The point of discipline is to rescue the gospel and restore the believer. It rescues the gospel because what we can't have is people running around saying, I belong to First Church of Corinth, and yeah, I'm in this illicit affair with my stepmother, but I still know and love Jesus. That destroys the gospel because the gospel calls you to take up your cross and follow Christ. The gospel calls you to deny yourself and follow him. The gospel calls you to turn from your sin and follow Jesus. The gospel doesn't call you to perfection. That ain't going to happen here. What it does call you to is as sins happen in your life, you repent from them and you turn from them. And so it destroys the gospel to have someone who says, I know and follow Jesus, but I live in this unrepentant sin pattern. So it rescues the gospel. It also restores the believer because if they really know Christ, the pressure of a church saying, we can't have confidence that you're believer should awaken their senses. And that's what it's done for this man. But the church in Corinth doesn't understand them that when this happens and this man is confessionally repentant, that they can now receive him back. Why? Because in some ways they believe lots of satanic philosophies. Uh, discipline is harsh and unloving. I had someone tell me one time, You should never discipline someone out of a church, ever, because you would never kick anyone out of your family. And this is a family. Do you know what that sounds like? Great. That sounds amazing. It's wildly broken. Because the fact of the matter is we live in a world where you can actually sin against one another in your home and in your family in such a way that, guess what? You need to be removed from that home and that family. We're not saying we don't love you. We're not saying we don't care for you. We are saying for your good and this good, you need to not be here. So it might sound nice, unbiblical, illogical, and doesn't work. Forgiveness and restoration is weak. So now we've disciplined the dude. We can't bring him back. That shows how weak we are. Paul might think worse of us. It twists scripture that calls for forbearance into ignoring sin. That's what they believed in 1 Corinthians 5. We're forbearing this man. No, you're not. You're ignoring his sinfulness. It twists scripture that calls for love, means you never confront. No, I can tell you whose job it is to confront. That's the pastor's job. That's not my job. Ephesians 4, speaking the truth and love everyone to his neighbor. Uh, Hebrews 3, exhort one another daily lest you be hardened through the deceptiveness of your sin. That's an everybody job. That's everybody. That's not just pastor job to a scripture that calls for discipline into a form of vengeance for the offender. This absolutely happens in the lives of churches. They're so mad, they're so irate, they discipline it as a way of working out the anger. This is like what a parent does when their child needs corrective discipline and instead it's their venting of their anger towards them. That absolutely happens. We move from the separation, though, from a person to solidarity with them because the story isn't finished until restoration happens. Listen, discipline needs to be thought of this way. Discipline is Friday. Pain, sorrow, suffering, turning of the face away from the wicked one. Restoration is Sunday. Resurrection, new life, Light piercing the darkness, the veil torn in two. Now it's rended, we have access. Sunday, we have community. You need to think that discipline isn't done until restoration has occurred. Relational conflict isn't finished until reconciliation has arrived. Two more, comfort, comfort they don't want to give comfort they don't want to provide comfort to this man you see it in verse 7 he says so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him it's it's a uh uh, a form of the word parakaleo, it's the same word that's used to identify the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the come beside one. To, to comfort is to walk with them in such a way that's arm around them, uh, loving them, so there's this physical proximity with them. I care for you, and I'm also talking to you as we're going. This is going to be okay. I'm with you. Think of the last funeral you were at, and someone, a family member is Grieving and they put their arm around them, and they walk with them. That's what this looks like. Well, that's really hard to do with someone that just stabbed you. Someone that just blew your church up. Somebody that just messed up your world. And now they're sorry. And they're confessional, and they're repentant about it. It's coming along the center with a deep heart to help them grow and change, with patient kindness, now, the reality is, Paul points out, the discipline wasn't a lack of love. I beg you, verse 8, to reaffirm your love for him. They never stopped loving him. But showing this level of tenderness to someone who's wounded you this way is really, really difficult. Comforting my enemy, Satan would say, only makes them stronger. I can't give water and food and clothing to this, to this wicked enemy of mine. I can't extend grace to them. It will strengthen them. It will revive them. The way to destroy my enemy is keep my foot on their throat till they're dead. Comforting the sinner will only encourage them to sin more. They need to know how deeply they hurt me and so if I give them comfort in the sorrow of their sin, then they're just going to go back to hurting me more. If I comfort the perpetrator then I'm abandoning the victim. The reality is in any conflict or certainly in any, any, any kind of power abusive situation, your first Second and third kindness needs to be the victim. But it doesn't mean you can never show comfort to the confessionally repentant perpetrator. Comforting the one who was wrong minimizes what they did. All these kind of things go through our brains. How do we move, though? How do we move from conflict to companionship? We approach the repentant with grace, is what it should say. We approach them with grace Because we know what it's like to be laying broken by the road needing rescue. We comfort because we've been comforted. You see, as Christians, we should all intimately know what it's like to be broken over our sinfulness. To be weeping over our carnality. And to need someone to come along beside us and remind us of Christ's grace and truth. In Matthew Before we even confront someone, we're to consider the log in our own face. So it's a humility when we deal with sinful people. Galatians 6, we go to restore a brother overwhelmed in a a sin, overburdened by sinfulness. We do it with humility, recognizing we could sin in the same way. And so it's a humble disposition towards people that lives in the reality we have received comfort we didn't deserve. We approach comfort for the repentant, Because we know what it's like to be laying by the side of the road broken and bleeding and naked and having the good Samaritan who is personified in Jesus coming by and washing our wounds and anointing us with oil and comforting us. When someone has wronged you and they come to you confessionally repentant, how do you respond? Maybe... maybe Maybe you're tempted to do this. Okay, I forgive you. I just don't want to be around you right now. This is a call. This is a gracious call to you that that's not what Paul is saying here. He is saying there should be a tenderness with how you deal with the one who has wronged you who's now repenting of that to you. But that's a hurdle. Is that a hurdle for you? Guess what? It's a hurdle for me. It's hard for me to do. I want to look at him and say, man, just own it. Soak in that mess. All right, I'm going to forgive you, but I'm kind of glad you're crying over it. Maybe you get a little taste of how I felt. Maybe I'm the only one here that's that carnal. That's sarcasm. I know I'm not. There's one last barrier, a barrier to actually forgive To forgive someone is to release them from the personal consequences as much as possible in order to have a restored as much as possible relationship. I'm going to read that again because it's really important. Releasing the offender from personal consequences as much as possible in order to have a restored as much as possible relationship. I give those caveats, that, that phrase, as much as possible. Because in the vast majority of circumstances, it is the case that forgiveness and full reconciliation are married to each other. You can't have forgiveness without being reconciled to a person. However, there can be sins, and I'm talking here of sins that we would broadly call abuse, or exercises of twisted power that will always result in a limit to how safely you can be around the one who has sinned against you. And full reconciliation may not be able to happen till you get to glory. That can happen. That does happen. It exists. I want you to know it's rare. It's rare. And so we have, to, we have to give these caveats, but we have to think in a discerning way. Forgiveness from Paul and advocated by Paul gives us an insight into how difficult it is to pursue unity in the life of the church. Forgiveness is the laying aside of our right to punish this offender. There's all kinds of satanic philosophy. Forgiveness isn't really possible. We all carry deep wounds and wish harm on our enemies. Like the reality is all of us have been there at some point. Some of you may be there right now this morning. If I forgive them, they're just going to hurt me again anyway. Forgiveness is somehow separate from love or restoration. In other words, I can mentally or verbally forgive them, but not love them or be restored to them. That's, that's satanic thinking. That's not true. Forgiveness in the Bible. Like Put it this way. Do you want God to forgive you and then also say, yeah, but I don't really want a relationship with you at all. I forgive you, but I don't want you in heaven with me. Then who cares? It's all wrapped up together. A famous passage, Jesus, the disciples, he teaches on discipline. And then the disciples are asking, how often do I I have to forgive my brother? Because they get the reality that sometimes people get in these habit patterns of sin, and they keep hurting you. They keep saying things that are wrong. They keep acting in wrong ways. And how often do I have to do it? And Jesus in that moment teaches about how forbearing and willing our hearts need to be forgiven. And, And so Peter says seven times. He goes, no, 70 times seven. Now, that's a fascinating phrase that Jesus uses. The math of that is to show us how willing we should be to forgive others. But you have to know your Bible really well to know what he's doing there. You see, because Jesus is quoting a guy from the Old Testament. In Genesis, there's this great, great, great grandson of Cain. And you might remember Cain, he kills his brother Abel. He says, God says, you're sending you out. You've got to go out from everybody else. I'm going to put a mark on you uh, because Cain says, oh no, they're going to kill me. And and God says, no, I'm going to put a mark on you. So if anybody kills or hurts Cain, I will avenge it sevenfold on them. Great, great, great grandson. So God does that to give protection, right? To protect Cain from anybody messing with him. So Cain can live his life in the sorrow of his sin, honestly, and hopefully come to repentance. There's no indication of in the Bible. We don't know if that ever happened. So great, great, great grandson, a guy named Lamech. Lamech comes along. And Lamech has some encounter, some, some assault from another guy. Some guy fights him and hurts him. And this is what Lamech says in a little song he would sing to his two wives, Genesis 4, 23 and 24. Lamech said to his wives, Ada and Zillah, Hear my voice, you wives of Lamech. Listen to what I say. I have killed a man for wounding me, a young man for striking me. If Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is seventy-sevenfold. That's who Jesus is quoting. Do you know what he's saying? Lamech is saying this. You touch me, and I'm going to bring the wrath on you, 70 times seven. he's saying that as a way of self-preservation. Lamech thinks his bitter and his bitterness and his anger and his strength and his power is what will keep him safe. He boasts in his stubbornness that I don't let people hurt me and get away with it. And Jesus says, let your boast be this. You trust God to deal with it. And you are willing to forgive them 70 times seven times. You know what he's really telling us? At the core of our struggle with relational reconciliation is fear. It's fear. We're afraid we're going to get hurt again. We can only move from fear to forgiveness when we stop worrying so much about avoiding painful relationships and instead live in a kingdom of love that casts out all fear, even the fear of restored relationships with people who have hurt us. And I want you to know that is really, really hard. It takes faith. And so I just close this way. What are the hurdles to your reconciliation with others will you commit to following a biblical model so that so that god could cut a path toward reconciliation in your life